This is the business of sports. Should Major League Baseball shorten up the season? How do we present football to the audience of the future? I don't think that most players understand the power that they have. Michael Barr. The future of IndyCar racing is looking bright. Scott Soshnick. Very basic math here. More bidders means more money. Evan Novi williams The team value has essentially quadrupled. And the leaders in the sports industry. Time to bring in our guest, Hal Steinbrenner. National Hockey League Commissioner Gary Bettman. Atlanta Braves President Derek Schiller. Patriots President Jonathan Kraft. Bloomberg Business of Sports. From Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Michael Barnes. I'm Evan Novi williams And I'm Scott Soshnick. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. Coming up, an interview with Jared Smith, the president of Ticketmaster, and we'll have that for you in a few minutes. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week, beginning with a suspension in NCAA basketball. Memphis center James Weissman out for a total of 12 games. Why? Why? Because way back in the day, he uh, got some help from the guy who just happens to be his coach now, Penny Hardaway. (laughs) Oh, my. So Penny was a booster, I guess, technically by the NCAA's uh, rule book. But the, the you know the part here is that Memphis actually played him while they knew this was going on, kind of challenging the NCAA. But now he's going to sit out a bunch of games, and we should probably say that Wiseman is sort of the consensus number one pick in the draft. Yeah, he's, the year. he's yeah. a hot prospect. Memphis is considered one of the best teams in the country. They're ranked somewhere in the top twenty-five right now. Uh, he borrowed, I believe, it was eleven thousand five hundred dollars from from Hardaway a couple years ago. Well, that's a lot um, of pennies. Thank you very I, I much. I believe he's. That's, <laughs> Not, that's that was terrible. Good. That's terrible. Oh come on, um, Twitter I, poll. <laughs> I believe he's paid that money back. And and the weird thing about what the NCAA announced on top of this suspension, which is going to end up being being twelve games total, um, on top of that, he has to give eleven thousand five hundred dollars. Yeah, this is the to, part I don't get to a charity of his choice. So he's already paid the money back to Penny Hardaway. Presumably he needed that money for some reason. The idea that he also has $11,000 floating around I got an idea, is, is pretty ridiculous. Penny should front him, and by the time the NC gets around to investigating it, he'll be in the NBA. <laughs> well, well, I was, that's something I was going to ask is that, first of all, if he decides, well, the heck with this, I'm just going to the NBA, why does he have to pay back the $11,000? And two, what happens to Memphis's win-loss record if the NCAA says, you know what, Pet you Pete, played. did you A and then two instead of B? Oh, God. That's three. Uh, okay. Jesus, guys. <laughs> anyway, NCAA. There we go. Okay. Here we go. Uh, up next, a story interesting. Someone connected with uh, the University of Florida Gulf Coast sent out a hundred offers to prospective student athletes. Yeah, let's air quote offers to about a hundred players to come play football for the school. The only problem here is that Florida Gulf Coast, yes, a Division One school. However, it does not have a Division One football team. It does have a club football team, and some folks who got these. Offers might have thought they were headed to a Division One institution. Yeah, this is a funny one. This kind of came to my attention when Florida Gulf Coast tweeted out a statement that essentially yeah. said, "By the way, we don't have a football team. If you received an offer, it is not a scholarship <laughs> offer." It sounds as though, from a bit more reporting, uh, that there is confusion out there about what offer means. Right? The the coach of this team, who I believe is not a university employee, is a volunteer, has said that he made it explicitly clear to everybody that he talked to and was quote unquote recruiting that they pay their own way. There's no scholarships this offer is if you get into the school you have a spot on the team that's what he was promising them um it doesn't seem that hard to clear up like you know this should not yeah once once you have you know dozens of football players in the area 
putting on social media, blessed to have received an offer to play football at, at, at FGCU. I think that kind of caught the attention of some of the people at the university who said, wait a second. Who's who's making offers for, kids a, that for a sport said, we don't offer? Especially the kids that said no to Alabama, Michigan, and Ohio State. Yes, yeah. of yeah. course. I'm sure, there were, I'm sure there were a lot of them. <laughs> Never mind. I'm playing for that Florida Gulf Coast. That five-star quarterback recruit who decided to go. Anybody know what their nickname is? Florida Gulf Coast? Anybody? Uh, all I remember is Dunk City, Lob City. Whenever yeah. they went to the Andy Enfield, right, was their yeah. coach yeah. back in the day when they went to the you know Sweet 16 or something like that. <laughs> what else we got, my man? Finally, let's turn to soccer with news that one major league soccer owner is leading a $50 million investment in what he called the most important decade for U.S. soccer. Yeah, well, Richie Graham is an investor in the Philadelphia Union of MLS, and I sat with him yesterday, and let me tell you, he did chuckle. He did. He said that, and I said, well, you know, Richie, we've heard that in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, but you do get some sense that with the World Cup coming in 2026, uh, the U.S., the predominant host for the tournament, there will be some games in Canada and Mexico as well, he is all in. He wants to create not only media opportunities, but buy up leagues and teams and academies and even schools to make it a one-stop shop destination for everything U.S. soccer. The culture of soccer, the fashion of soccer, everything. He wants people coming there if you're in the ecosystem. Yeah, this kind of first wave of of soccer love in America kind of stems back to 1994 when, when America hosted the, the World Cup. And one of the legacies of that hosting, obviously, is, is Major League Soccer, the, the professional, the, the top-tier professional soccer league we have right now. Uh, so I think the assumption is, and, and probably rightfully so, that you know if that was kind of the injection of soccer into America, that 2026 uh, is going to be another kind of step up in terms of, of the soccer infrastructure here in the U.S. Uh, and why not, you know, be on the early side of investing in that wave? Yeah, uh, he's got a team of, let's say, veteran folks from Adidas, ESPN, U.S. Soccer, Copa 90, it's a digital soccer focus. So a seasoned uh, leadership team for this venture. It'll be interesting to see what becomes of it. Now, let's get to this week's interview with Jared Smith, the president of Ticketmaster. He's been with the company for more than 16 years, serving as president for the last seven. He leads all of the company's technology, customer service, sales, and marketing operations. Jared, thank you so much for joining us right here on Bloomberg Business of Sports. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. I think all of our listeners, or most of our listeners, I hope, are familiar with Ticketmaster. If they've bought a ticket uh, to a sporting event or a, or a concert you know, in the past forever. You know, they've probably done it uh, through you guys. Uh, give me a sense, real quick, scale of your business. How big is Ticketmaster's business right now? Yeah, sure. Um, it's it's a big business. We, in 2018 or 2019, we'll, we'll process roughly half a billion tickets across uh, 30 different countries. You know, the bulk of that obviously is North America. Yeah, U.S. is obviously our biggest market. Um, and we'll process somewhere in the neighborhood of, of $30 billion in, in transaction value uh, across, uh, across those tickets. 425,000 events, something like that, that we'll ticket this year. So you're small. <laughs> <laughs> Small but growing. And and how big how big of that 
portion is sports. Is, is sports half a third? Kind yeah, of where you, it you can you can kind of think of it as um, you know r- rough order of magnitude, and it, it varies pretty wildly by by country. But you know, forty percent sports, forty percent music, and twenty percent all other. The the biggest in that all other category is is arts and theater, uh, Broadway, touring shows, uh, things like that. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's rough order of magnitude. And real quick, for folks who maybe don't understand exactly how the the behind the scenes business works. You guys partner with teams, leagues, or venues, yep. and, and as a result of those partnerships, get access to being the ticket distributor, yeah. seller at the front end. It's kind of like media rights, right, in some ways? Yeah, in, in some ways. Um, it, it's it, We often say it's it's one of the more confusing uh, business models and one of the more misunderstoods. It's, it's, a, it's a brand that almost is universally recognized. People, people know the brand and they've interacted with the brand, but they don't, they don't really understand you know, exactly that, how the, how the rights landscape kind of works. So you can, you can really think of Ticketmaster as a, as a two-sided marketplace. Um, you, hear, you hear that phrase a lot out of Silicon Valley these, years, uh, these days, but, uh, but Ticketmaster is exactly that. So on the one hand, we have a, a B2B um, you know, kind of enterprise SaaS business model. Uh, where we sell, essentially sell uh, software for sports teams, uh, venues, promoters, uh, theater operators to to run their business. So inventory management, pricing, distribution, CRM, marketing tools, those types of things. Uh, and then on the other side of the business, we have a consumer marketplace, uh, Ticketmaster.com and uh, historically, you know, a, a retail distribution network that you know has, has gone the way of of mobile devices and and the like. Uh, but those two are are fairly separate businesses, but are complementary. So the the media rights uh, analogy is is pretty uh, accurate on the SaaS side in that. You know, we we sell the software, but we're we're essentially engaging in a uh, in a relationship where we provide a platform for them to do with what they want to to manage their business, uh, and then the business model is essentially um, we charge for the uh, charge fees to consumers for the distribution of those tickets, and then we rev share that back with whoever the content rights holder is. All right, that was the key for me because I want to go back to 1982. Twelve-year-old Scott Soshnick wants to see White Snake at Nassau Coliseum. Great, and, great show. Great show. Yeah. David Coverdale, excellent. Tony Katane was there. No, no Jaguar though. Um, <laughs> when I look at the cost of these tickets, and then I see the fees. How often do you hear about the fees? Like, wait a minute. This, this seems a little high for the service that I'm getting right here. Of course, that was 1982. Yeah, yeah. Um, Two dollar ticket. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a little bit of a of an inside joke when you work at Ticketmaster, right? The, the the people find out at the cocktail party, they either ask you one of two things: they ask you, you know, what's with those fees, or can you get me tickets? Um, so you very quickly have to learn how to answer both of those questions. The second is, no, they're not mm-hmm. ours. We don't we don't give them out. Um, but it's you know it's 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 a fascinating. Um, um, business problem in that we don't actually the the fees are of uh, an extension of the face value of the ticket price. It's it's because of the way that the rights work uh, in in the value chain, particularly on the music side, where the the artist or the content holder they're getting one hundred percent of the face value. The venue or um, sometimes the middleman or sometimes the content itself is sharing in those fees, and they're not always aligned on on how you how you how you line up that price. So the reality is, you know, 
there are very few industries that kind of show what that margin is or what that incremental um, uh, source of revenue is. Right. And to the consumer, it really shouldn't matter. It doesn't matter. We actually believe it, it'd be better for the entire industry to go to all-in pricing. Yeah, just, just bake to re- it into the just, price, right. Just to remove the confusion yes. for everybody. Um, Does your website have a tab where you can do that already? We're starting to do that now, okay. yes. We do it We do it as a matter of course in almost every country but the U.S. Gotcha. Um, in, in most of those countries, it's it's required to do that. The challenge is, you know, almost you have to have everybody do it so that you're not at a, at a disadvantage when people are comparison shopping between marketplaces that one site seems cheaper than the other because the fees aren't baked in uh, up front. Right? Are, are people so, not savvy enough to, to to get that distinction that when they check out, oh, you, there's thirty dollars? Thank you, Evan. I was going to ask. Yeah, I, I, but just be I, the industry in leader. In other words, just a guy it. like me would I understand this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Earth, wind, and fire at the Detroit Forum or whatever. I, was, I saw, that. I, but that's I, another story. Yeah, I, I wouldn't characterize it as savvy or not, but it it is. Uh, you know, it's 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 learned behavior. So the industry has operated that way for a very long time. You know, so consumers are trained to expect this is a face value, and as I go through the process, there's going to be fees that are tacked on. Whatever blowback does it come on you? What you say there isn't much, but whatever blowback does exist on the consumer side, does that come back to you? I yeah. doubt if it goes back to the artists or the <laughs> venues. No, it comes back to us. Uh, it comes back to us, and disproportionately um, comes back to us when when a disproportionate uh, amount of the fees you know are shared uh, outside of us. But um, you know, if we absolutely want to be an industry leader, and we think there's a better way to do this, um, and and we we want to we want to lead the industry in a way that is also fair for the content holders, right? The you ask why not go out front and do it yourself? Well, we have an obligation as a platform that's used by content holders to be competitive. So if you put yourself out there. And people and, and other sites aren't doing that, and it impacts conversion for your content holders. You, you put them at a disadvantage. So we're trying to we're trying to pull everybody along uh, to get there. And I think I think over the next uh, foreseeable future that'll change. It doesn't make a difference whether you do the Ticketmaster way or the old man bar way of walking up to the booth looking for Frank Sinatra tickets. <laughs> people still will scalp. There are scalpers out there. How do you guys combat something like that? Um, we don't use the word scalper. Um, you know, there, there's, there are two very distinct um, groups of people that are buying tickets and or selling tickets for a living. Um, and there are um, a group of, of brokers, some of which operate online, some of which operate directly with content holders, that we think are absolutely a, a healthy part of the ecosystem. All of the attention uh, in the industry as it relates to resale goes, you know, primarily to the hottest shows, right? So the the one or two percent of the concerts or the sporting events that are actually sold out. But the reality is the vast majority, you know, ninety eight plus percent. Ooh, sports teams aren't going to like this dirty little secret <laughs> thing out there uh, <laughs> that that aren't sold out or or do have inventory that is available and um, and and. Ticket brokers um, are a source of distribution in the same way that travel agents are a source of distribution in the in the in the travel business. So they play a a, a real uh, role in taking risk off the table and, and increasing distribution because they've created local businesses or they've created ways to um, to understand you know how to how to monetize and how to price and and how to operate those business. So um, so we don't we don't have a, a an issue with with any of that, and we're certainly not anti resale. We think it's a healthy portion of of the overall ecosystem. Uh, that being said, the other category are cheaters, right? And there are um, there are a, a big bulk of, of folks that use um, 
you know, nefarious tools, ticket bots and, and other automated, you know, sophisticated technologies to try and cheat the system to buy the hottest of the hot tickets for the sole purpose of, of reselling those uh, on the secondary market. And um, although it would seem to be a relatively easy problem to solve, it's not. You know, there's a, in the U.S. alone, uh, there's an $8 billion secondary market. It's, there's a, it's a huge arbitrage opportunity. And I don't know many other industries where there's been that kind of arbitrage opportunity that has existed for that length of time and continues to grow, where the content holders, whether it's media rights or any other product, hasn't found a way to close that and grab that, those dollars that are leaking out of the system back into the, the places where it should be. It should go to the venues, some of which are municipally uh, funded, or the content holder themselves, the artists, the promoters taking the risk, the sports team who built the, the venue, paid the player payroll, et cetera, et cetera. So who's out front there? Is it like Dan Gilbert back, was it still Flash Seats when he's like, I'll create my own ticketing marketplace and make an exclusive for resale of, my, of Cavaliers tickets? Yeah. Um, Dan and had, a, had a product uh, called Flash Seats um, that was, was, was certainly um, a, a leader in that. So, you know, we do a bunch of things to answer the, the previous question. We do a bunch of things to protect um, against those those software and the in the in the cheaters. The reality is many of those things are treating the symptoms of the problem and not the the core issue itself. The only way to solve the core issue itself is to actually price it according to market. So go to your your previous question, you know, why does the arbitrage exist and do people complain about ticket prices? Well, of course they do, but they're they're still underpriced by and large. Sports do a way better job of pricing to market versus music. But music also, you know, artists are some of the the greatest brand managers, long-term brand managers. And it's not about taking the last dollar. Uh, It's about building a brand where people pay a fair price to see a show over some period of time and and grow that brand. So what, what we're trying to do is work with artists to price closer to market. Recapture some of that value directly because the the smaller that opportunity is, the more you take the incentive away from somebody to cheat to buy and sell. In uh, number two, we believe that we need to control the product. I, real quick on, on number one, there. Um, if you're an artist like let's say Taylor Swift, right? Someone who you know th- there's huge demand for her shows. Pricing closer to market might mean pricing out a significant portion of your fan base that simply can't afford. Market right there. There must be a push and pull there for artists who are thinking, "Man, I I could all my tickets resell for five hundred dollars plus, but if I listed for four fifty, you know, suddenly yeah. half my fans can't even afford to go to a concert." Yeah, we don't think they're mutually exclusive. Well, they didn't uh, care. Hamilton tickets back in the day, or even now, they didn't care. They they wanted to hit a certain price point where there was no resale. Yeah, they they wanted they wanted to price according to market, and but Hamilton is a good example of of a. Of a unique event, right? You have very, very high demand in a very, very small theater um, with a, a repetition of of that in a in a tourist um, heavy market like New York Broadway. Um, but you know, when you when you're talking about Taylor Swift in an arena or, or in a stadium, um, there's there's lots of examples of how do you price more more close closely to market at the front of the house, which actually if you if you get higher grosses out of the front of the house can actually help you lower the price in the mm. back of the house mm. so you become a little bit more equitable. Um, th- you know, t- taking the, the first 10 rows and getting them closer to what you would see in sports of courtside seating, 
right? The cost to go to a Lakers game and sit courtside is orders of magnitude higher than the cost to sit in the front row of a Taylor Swift show, mm-hmm. as an example, right? So if you can get more out of those seats, it actually allows you to lower prices in maybe the upper deck or the, the back portions of, of the lower bowl of an arena show. And we've actually seen higher grosses, if it's done right, at lower average ticket price across the entire arena. So mm. it's it's growing in its sophistication. And there's a lot for music and theater to learn from sports because that's exactly what sports does, right? The average NBA team, as an example, probably has you know 30 to 50 price le- levels over the course of 20,000 seats. The average concert has less than 10. And many of them have four or five. Right, so the more you can break that up, the, the actually you can get closer to market and and actually achieve kind of both of those things at the same time. Another one of the Ticketmaster answers to some of these problems is SafeTix, yep. uh, a program that you guys started a couple years ago. And correct me if I'm wrong, was Taylor Swift the first one to kind of go through this process? I thought she had a, a brilliant approach to this, right? Which was essentially creating an entire ecosystem where her fans got points yep. for doing things like buying her album, interacting on social, you know, shopping in her shop. Yep. And depending on your point level, that determined your access to her shows. Yeah, no, that's exactly what she did. And it was a it was a program that um, that we kind of co-created with her. It was, she was the first one to 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 do that type of activity. Um, we we started a program called Verified Fan uh, two ish years ago. And it was it was essentially that, right? Instead of um, you know, taking all of this demand and trying to sort out who was an actual fan and who was a, a com- automated computer at the time of the onset when you have this crush of all of this demand on the systems in real time, how do we separate those two things, have people pre-register, um, and then in some form or fashion provide us some information that we could asynchronously, like not in real time, uh, determine, you know, based on purchase history and that kind of stuff, who was an actual fan versus a versus a bot. How do you do that in advance and then give them a code to come back in and and actually purchase? And we've had a lot of success with with that program over time. Taylor um, Camp and that show took that to a different level, which is to say, instead of just determining who was a who was a, a person and versus a bot. You know, how do I reward the people who have who have supported me the most and created a points program based on previous uh, previous attendance at her shows and how many albums they had bought, so on and so forth, and uh, and really broke new ground. Now, it, it, it's a it's a longer, more complex um, uh, process to do that than what is generally seen today in, in the touring business, where you announce you go on sale uh, relatively quickly. But there's a there's a model there for others to follow. Well, it sounds sure. like data analytics on the performer side. How do you utilize the uh, the data of your customers? Yeah, you no, know, we've been we've been looking at and investing in uh, data and analytics products for the better part of six, seven, eight years now. Um, we've got a full data science team that's using you know machine learning and uh, and a lot of the you know the cutting edge technologies to to, to crunch that data. Um, it's you know it's it's always a work in in progress and you know it, again when you get back to this this arbitrage opportunity there's a lot of incentive there for people to uh, to make it hard to determine and uh, determine who's a fan and, and who's a bot so uh, we're getting better and better at it each year it's it's not perfect um, but it's you know these these are the tools that we're investing in to make sure that we can we can get better. We're talking with Jared Smith, who is with Ticketmaster. And I was just asking a question about, uh, yes, I can make the crack about, you know, Dumpster Fire 19, the Giants versus the Jets watching that game uh, that was in the newspaper, whatever. But there were a lot of tickets sold. So I, my question is, 
even though we make fun of winless teams like the Cincinnati Bengals and this and that, whatever, how still does it impact you guys? Because I still see a lot of tickets being sold for that simply because it's the NFL. Yeah, I mean, there's a um, you know we're fortunate to work in a in a business that um, is is extremely resilient. <laughs> Live entertainment has never been more popular. If you look at any uh, any category of of market growth, is it know. recession proof, recession resistant? What's the right terminology for sports and recession? I've I've heard it many ways. What do you see? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's certainly resistance um, is as far as we've seen. And even even if you look back, you know, two thousand and eight, um, you know, the 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 beauty of of the business is it's it it tends to be uh, balanced in a way that sometimes you know when you have a, a slower touring year you might have an upper uh, sports year and, and vice versa so it's pretty diversified uh, both in terms of genre industry vertical or or certainly international um, this year happened to be um, you know a, a great year for us from a music perspective in Europe as an example um, so you, you get you get a lot of diversity of, of the business in that way but you know s- sports in particular is you know I think that a lot has been made of you know, or, or is the is the TV experience so great these days that it's it, you know it's making people stay at home as opposed to to go to the go to the venue, and we just don't see that at all. Um, I think you see people going in in different uh, ways. People value flexibility. Um, teams are doing great jobs in recreating season ticket products with more flexible plans and. Uh, more flexible offers. That leads me into one thing, though, that I've heard from a number of owners and team mm-hmm. CEOs. They ask about their fan satisfactions. One of the things everybody's concerned about is ingress and egress. And mm-hmm. egress would obviously have more to do with parking, but ingress is ticketing. Yep. I don't think we can talk about ticketing without talking tech. Yep, totally. So where are we? What are we doing? What's next? How's it working? Because streaming services are learning that this isn't so easy. Yeah. We have our problems. And once again, that'll come back on you. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and, and the experience that you have at the gate is, is most often associated with with us because that you know the logo that's on that ticket generally when right. you're going if to a that, game or a if concert that, if is that red master. laser thing doesn't beep but 100%. I'm stuck there that's on you yeah no 100% um, which is why we've we've really leaned into that so you know I, I, I said earlier that um, that we've got uh, two core we've got a core problem that we're trying to solve in two ways one of which is pricing the other of which is is controlling the inventory um, generally speaking historically the the problem with a ticket is that it is completely anonymous uh, in highly transferable outside of of any visibility of the content holder. So a static barcode on a piece of paper can be Xeroxed or screenshot and sold on a secondary market. And when you show up for Jets Giants and there's 60,000 people in the stadium, the content holder knows who they sold those tickets to, but they don't actually know who's in the venue. Um, we've tried to uh, take advantage of leaning into the the clear consumer desire to make ticketing easier from the time I buy to the time that I enter on a mobile device um, to change that experience. And that's what SafeTix really was about, mm-hmm. was not just taking a static barcode and putting it on a phone, but taking the phone in the same way that you have that tied to somebody's identity that is secure and safe and then can be personalized um, in the same way that you use uh, your payment is tied to your phone and therefore to your identity, we've done the same thing with ticketing. Um, and I'll use the NFL as the, as the example because they've really been out front um, of, of, this, um, of this change. 
But in two years that we went all digital uh, last season and then 2019, we went basically all safe ticks, which is all dynamic, you know, identity-based ticketing. Um, you know, we're seeing the top top end of the range. The Minnesota Vikings are seeing 96% entry on mobile devices. Mm. Week in, week out. The entire league is now at 66% uh, on average, and it ranges from, you know, 50 to, to you know, high 40s to, to 96. That changes almost everything about the possibility of the team understanding who's there, uh, notifying them. Not only do I, do I know that when Jared's phone comes in, Jared's actually there, but now I have a device that I can communicate to them on, whether it's, you know, something happens or there's a Amber alert and somebody's lost child. I can send a text alert to everybody in there. I can do that. I can I can create custom promotions. You get your predictive analytics. Bar wants his two hot dogs and his soda. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. You didn't need an announcement for that. <laughs> and, and, and popcorn. <laughs> Before we wrap it up, I, I wanted to ask you though: Is there something being lost in that paper ticket keepsake? Do people want it? Uh, people absolutely want it, uh, and and we aim to we aim to to, to solve that. I think you'll see us uh, start to roll out in the next twelve months or less uh, some commemorative ticket options. Um, you know, it's a it's a keepsake, uh, like unlike any other, right? The the drawer that you have or the bulletin board. Uh, live events are some of the greatest memories of your first date or. You know, I grew up, you know, the youngest of five boys, and we'd make a pilgrimage every summer to Wrigley Field. Like, I have those ticket stubs from those Cub games going all the way back, right? Barr uh, has the first World Series victory for the Cubs. Yeah. Oh, Third yeah. baseline. Yeah, I got the baseball. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But, but yeah, it's it's definitely part of it, and we don't want to lose the the nostalgia of that. It's it's something special about the business we're in. Jared, I did want to make sure that I asked you, back in 2010 when Live Nation and Ticketmaster merged, uh, you guys were given a 10-year consent decree essentially to, to play nice with your rivals. You know, we're coming up on the point where that expires, I believe, and a couple senators, Richard Blumenthal and Amy Klobuchar, announced in August, I think, that they that they wanted a, a kind of a look into kind of the dynamics in the ticketing world. Yeah. Is that worrisome for Ticketmaster? They're certainly not the first politicians to to to, to call for you know looking into this world. Kind of how how do you guys receive? You know, announcements like that. Yeah, I mean, look, we we take our our obligations under the consent decree extremely seriously. Um, it's it's something that's been part of our culture and our DNA to make sure that people understand uh, what those obligations are and that we um, that we uh, continue to operate the business in in the best way possible and the and the, with the most integrity and otherwise. Um, you know, we we have had. Uh, you know, in, in any given year, we're signing thousands and thousands of renewals or, or new contracts, and the DOJ um, has has certainly you know continued to monitor that progress. They've asked some questions about a handful of of those deals, but um, I, it's not concerning to us because we we know how we operate the business, and uh, and in the end, I think that that'll prove itself out. So um, so yeah. On a lighter note, when we do our first live show, we're going to give you a call to see if you can, uh, you guys can handle the tickets for us. <laughs> we're we're on board. We're on board. If anytime. you add up all the family member demand, <laughs> I know my family wouldn't want to come. Bar, yes. Wait a minute. We've got to handle how many Maybe. people come? So in? probably Depends on the guest. Depends <laughs> on the guest. We can do some some tiered pricing on yeah, that. Yeah, we'll see how we do the tiered pricing for sure. Yeah, the one, the one seat, no, the one seat in the first row is an astronomical number, and everybody else comes in free. Jared Smith, president of Tickmaster. Thanks so much for sharing the thoughts. That's, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you, sir. He's a cool guy. I like him. Now, I've also learned that there is no such term with Ticketmaster as scalpers. <laughs> I thought that was just a common term, but apparently— I think it, it is. I not. think in you know, the current climate, we, we just don't use it. <laughs>
see there resale well, yeah resale yeah. it's you <laughs> secondary know. market yeah. <laughs> my takeaway is i don't want to be standing next to him uh, at a cocktail party you know you just you just say at, at the ticketmaster cocktail party he he says it's the same two things one what's with the fees and i'm glad he sort of explain that because I've always wondered who gets the blame. Like I, I would channel all of my disdain of the fees toward Ticketmaster. So they actually have good reason to try and change the model, which I'm glad to know they are. And then number two, of course, it's sort of the same thing that you know we get sometimes. And can you get me tickets? Yeah, I, I just like that. That's what it actually happens. The two things that I would think happened to Jared Smith at a cocktail party actually do. Yeah, my takeaway, you know, he mentioned, you know, one of the unique things about this ticket industry, the the US resale market, $8 billion a year, uh, which is this tremendous arbitrage opportunity that really, I mean, exists in other industries, but is is very stark here and, and the things that Ticketmaster is doing to counter that. And also the kind of the difference between the way tickets are priced in sports versus in concerts. He made it very clear that, you know, NBA teams, NFL teams, hockey teams, baseball teams, they do a much better job of pricing to the market, you know, having a wide variety of inexpensive all the way up to very expensive tickets. Uh, and there may be a lesson there uh, for concert acts and, and, and musicians. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I would just have Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Number of the week. I'm going to give you a hint. It's about a retirement. The number is 48. Number of times Tomas Berdich lost yes. to Nadal or Federer before <laughs> yes, retiring. Andrew and I this were week. discussing the uh, Thomas Berdich announcement this uh, this morning. We were <laughs> just saying the perennial quarterfinal ouster. Yeah, well, he, he would be in the equivalent if you were a wrestling fan growing right. up. You liked wrestling, didn't oh, you? Yeah. Remember SD Special Delivery Jones? That was back when it was wrestling. Yeah, wrestling. So <laughs> he would always be a contender, but SD never won. Like, yeah. He never quite got into the. You know, it's like. Yeah, you know, he's got a chair. Oh, he lost again. <laughs> Thomas Burdich was SD Special Delivery Jones. Well, that's not it. What uh, <laughs> wrong retirement. Wrong guys. retirement. But people will like the reference. I like the reference, though. Uh, Jimmy Johnson. I knew. NASCAR I actually driver. didn't say anything because I knew. He's you, retiring at the end of 2020. That's right. Yeah. He has won the Daytona 500. I wanted to let him go. He's a really, legend, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I had <laughs> like a seven-time winner, right? Yeah. Seven, well, he no, he's won the uh, championship seven yeah. times. Well, yeah. That's what I said. And also, well, you said uh, seven-time winner. I said Daytona Of the championship. Oh, okay. Well, All right. Also so. a very fast marathoner, Jimmy Johnson. Oh, I, oh, New York resident. Right there for you. New York resident. Yeah. <laughs> you have been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, including an extra extended version of our interviews. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Evan Novi Williams at Novi underscore Williams. And I'm Scott Soshnick. You can follow me on Twitter at Soshnick. Thank you very much for joining us. And please tune in next week when we once again speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business industry. You are listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports, Bloomberg Radio, around the world. 